my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the apple seed. In every episode, we listen to great storytellers tell great stories, and we hope that the stories we bring you spark memories and thoughts that you can share with the people you love. That kind of storytelling can entertain, inspire, and even strengthen you and your family. I'm your host, Sam Payne, and today on the show, we have two stories about learning to love the people in our lives who test us. We all have those people in our lives, right? Perhaps a strict teacher who demands a lot from you or a little sister who follows you around and tells you everything you're doing wrong. In British storyteller Geraldine Buckley's story about her scamp of a brother, you'll find your way into just such a relationship. Quite frankly, I thought they should have killed him. (laughs) But oh no, 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 he was back to being the golden boy. <laughs> Geraldine Buckley with a story about how she learned to forgive all the pranks and misdemeanors through one of her own inadvertent missteps as she danced at her brother's wedding. Again, that's coming up. Also this hour we bring you an experience I had with a performance of Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, a piece of music that helped me better understand my grandfather. I sometimes describe him as a curmudgeonly, dictatorial, authoritarian old Greek. But I say it with love, for sure. I mean, I loved my grandpa. I was just terrified of him. Just a preview of that story coming up a little later in the hour. But let's leap right in with Damien's Limp, a story from Geraldine Buckley, recorded right here in front of our fantastic live audience in the Appleseed studio. Here's Geraldine. Well, my brother Damien is 18 months older than me. And from the moment he appeared in my life, he set out to make it his life's mission to traumatize me. So, for example, for my third birthday, I got a walkie-talkie doll. He was fascinated by her. When I went to sleep that afternoon, he decided to investigate. He took off her head. He disemboweled her. He wanted to see how she worked. He couldn't put her back together, and nor could anyone else. And then we shared a room together for some time. Every morning, now I have to tell you, he had a collection of matchbox toy cars. And every morning, every single morning, I would wake up with a car on my face, revving its engine, every single morning. And then when I was a little older, I had a teddy bear that I absolutely adored. Well, I came in our bedroom one time, and there was Teresa, my teddy bear, hanging from a light fixture with a noose around her neck and a sign attached to her stomach that said, I can't take it anymore. He was a pest. Damien was a pest, an absolute pest. And I adored him. And so did my parents. He was the only son. He was the golden boy. He could do no harm until he started to limp, and limp really badly. Now, my brother had been born with spina bifida, and he'd had the operation when he was little, but hadn't developed any problems walking. However, every year, the specialist would phone my mother to see if he had developed problems walking. So when she saw this limp, which appeared overnight, it seemed, and was really serious, she phoned up the specialist and he said, Mrs. Buckley, Mrs. Buckley, we need to bring him in. You need to bring him into the hospital tomorrow. We need to run some tests. So the next morning, my mother collected my brother and I and set off for the hospital. We left my father behind. They had a very successful hotel and restaurant. It was particularly known for the restaurant side, which was booming. And so my father stayed back to look after the lunch crowd. And I remember walking through the long, cold hospital corridors, holding my mother's hand and and smelling that that special smell of of disinfectant and stewing cabbage (laughs) and loneliness. And my brother was walking just a few steps ahead. But he was, normally, he was an enthusiastic, uh, bouncing, annoying little boy. But on this occasion, he was bent over like a little old man, and it looked as though he was having problems lifting up his leg. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Well, when the specialist saw this, he said, Mrs. Buckley, Mrs. Buckley, this is really serious. We need to keep him in overnight. In fact, probably for a few nights, we need to run a series of tests. Well, that night was the first time I remembered being in our room by myself ever. 
And my mother came in to tuck me in, say prayers with me, and she said, darling, don't worry. Damien will be back soon. And he was back soon, but he was still limping. So my mother went to see her aunt, my great aunt Eileen, who lived with us. She was in charge of the stockroom in the, the restaurant. And she said, Aunt Eileen, Aunt Eileen, they, they've done the tests and, and the tests for, for spina bifida have come back negative and they're, going to, they're doing other tests and we're going to get the results in a, a few days' time. Dr. Lahan, the family doctor, is going to come and tell us, but Aunt Eileen, they think it might be polio. And my, my great Aunt Eileen said, oh no, no, not polio. This was two years before the polio vaccine had been brought into Britain. And in fact, up till the... Uh, a few years before that, there had been several serious polio outbreaks, and many people had died, particularly children. And if they survived, they often had problems walking. So they would be in calipers or in wheelchairs, and sometimes they developed problems breathing. And they'd have to be in these machines where they laid out with only their head out. And they'd be in there for days or weeks or sometimes months. They were called iron lungs. And nobody would let a child or anybody else go anywhere where they thought there was a, a likelihood, even a, a slight possibility they might get polio, because people were so terrified of polio. Well, those next few days, they dragged by. My father banged pots and pans even more loudly than normal in the kitchen. My mother, who's a good Irish Catholic woman, she prayed to the Almighty, but also to St. Jude, who's the patron saint of hopeless cases. And it seemed like a pall was over the place. But finally, Dr. Lahan came back, and as I said, he was a family friend. He gathered us all in the living room, and he said to my mother, now, the tests have come back and for polio, and it, it's, they're negative. However, the specialist is seriously worried, and he wants me to see this lamp. Would you get Damien to come and walk over to me? And my mother said, certainly. She said, Damien, walk over to Dr. Lahan, and he's got a couple of, of sweeties, a couple of pieces of candy. You take one and give one to Geraldine. So Damien set off across the room. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. He took the candy. Did he give one to me? No, he did not. <laughs> but Dr. Lahan said, Valerie, this is serious. I've got to treat this as though it is polio. Now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go away for a week, and when I come back, if that limp is still there, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put the, the whole place into quarantine. And my mother said, no. No, no, put the steward into quarantine. No, she said, it's not polio. I just know it's not. And Dr. Lahan said, Valerie, I am so sorry, but I won't have any other option. That week dragged by. My father banged those pots and pans even louder in the kitchen. My mother prayed more fervently. And even though I was young, I knew that this was really serious. This was the only place I'd ever known, the only place I'd ever lived. This was our livelihood. And I knew enough to know that if the place, if the steward was put into quarantine, even if the quarantine was lifted, no one would ever come back because people were so terrified of polio. Well, finally, the week did pass. And Dr. Lahan came back. He saw Damien. He was still limping. So he gathered us all again in the living room and he said, Valerie, I am so sorry. The moment I leave here, I'm going to put in the, the order for the quarantine. Well, at that moment, the door opened and my great aunt Eileen came in. Now, she was badly crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. She, her feet were very misshapen. She couldn't fit into ordinary shoes, so she had to shuffle along in big brown men's slippers with the help of a cane. And she saw her favourite chair on the other side of the room and it was empty, so she started off towards it. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Damien got up, stood right behind her, bent over like a little old man and started to follow her. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Shuffle, shuffle, drag. Damien was imitating Aunt Eileen. <laughs> Dr. Lahan said... I wouldn't have believed it unless I'd seen it with my own eyes. Damien is imitating his great aunt. And my mother said, you mean to say he doesn't have polio? And Dr. Lahan said, no, he said, because the test came back negative and now I know where it came from. So my mother said, well, Damien, come over here, not like Aunt Eileen, come and walk over here like a little boy. My brother was incapable of being like a little boy. He galloped over there as though he was a pony. <laughs> Well, they all hugged him and they loved him. They were so grateful he didn't have polio. Quite frankly, I thought they should have killed him. <laughs> but oh no, 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 he was back to being the golden boy. 
So that was the first time that we realized that my brother had such a gift of mimicry. And over the years, he set out to make good his promise to traumatize me. <laughs> so I've lived in different parts of the world, and I've had phone calls. I had one from a South African lawyer offering me a plum job. Another from a Pakistani professor giving me the, the results of long-awaited tests. Another from a police official telling me I had so many parking tickets I was going to be incarcerated. And right till the end of the conversation, I believed them. And then I realized it was Damien. <laughs> and over the years, he has done some truly terrible, terrible, awful things to me. But even at his worst, which has been bad, even at his worst, I'm so glad that the polio didn't take him. And I still have a pesky, pesky brother. However, people have said to me, why did you not try and get revenge? But I have a very bad case of sibling amnesia. So I know that my brother absolutely loves me and he would never do anything to harm me until he does. <laughs> and then I quickly forget about it. But I thought that everything would change after he turned, well, after he became an adult, really, but after he got married. And he was due to get married the summer that he turned 23, the June he turned 23, to an absolutely gorgeous young woman called Nancy. He's still married to her. They're going to have their 40th wedding anniversary next year. Now, I have always known what Damien saw in Nancy because she is a superb person. I've never understood what Nancy have see, ever saw in my brother. I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, the strangest taste, strangest taste, but even so. Even so. So they were getting married in the June in London, in England, and I lived in London as well. Well, the oddest thing happened in the January. I started to get very, very itchy. I mean, really itchy. But I just started a new job at the BBC, which I was very excited about, a creative job. And I decided to go very, very English, even though I really am an Irish peasant woman with a thin veneer of English, English respectability, very thin at times. I, I decided to compartmentalize. The British are very good at that. And just, just put it in one corner because I really wanted to throw myself into the job. But by March, I was incredibly itchy. I mean, really, everything itched except my, my hair and my private parts, thank goodness. But everything else was very, very, very itchy. Well, at that time, my parents came over. They lived in Spain, which sounds very exotic, but it's only two and a half hours from London. It's like if you live on the East Coast retiring to Florida. And I was in their hotel room in London, and I was having a quick itch. And my father said, Geraldine, he said, that's clearly stress. I mean, you need, it's the, the, it's the new job. That's what it is. Stress does incredible things. You need vitamins, vitamin B. Here's, here's a packet of B12, take them. And my mother said, that's all very well and good. She said, but, but she needs to see a doctor and I'll make her an appointment. So I found myself at a specialist and, and um, it was the most beautiful place, a, a big room with, with beautiful carving in the, in the walls and a lovely ceiling, not like any other normal doctor's office. And that's when I realized my mother didn't know any doctors in London except for diet doctors. And she'd been trying to get me to go to one for years. She had tricked me. <laughs> so I turned to the doctor, and then he looked at me. He said, you're fat. And I said, I know I'm fat, I said. <laughs> but I'm also itchy. He said, well, do you have a, a dog in that office? Well, England is a nation of dog lovers, and there are many dogs in offices, and we did. He said, well, clearly that office dog has got fleas. Here, take these pills and go and lose weight. So I took the doctor's pills, I took my father's vitamins, I didn't lose any weight, and I, I stayed itchy. Well, we came to June just before the wedding, a couple of days before the wedding, and I was so itchy. I was waking up in the middle of the night weeping. I was so itchy. But the wedding was coming up, and I wanted to enjoy every moment of it. So again, I compartmentalized, took a bit of more time to shove it into a, into a corner, deciding I, I wanted to love this wedding, every moment of it, and I knew it was going to be marvelous. People were coming from all over the place. They were coming from all over England, all over Europe, and there was a contingency coming from Texas because that's where my sister-in-law was from originally. And those Texans arrived in their boots and their drawers and their hats. And there was one young man who was my, my future and now sister-in-law's cousin who was very handsome. He was just a few years older than me, and he twinkled at me. And I twinkled right back. <laughs> and he carried on twinkling all the way through the wedding. And, oh, 
oh, I had the loveliest time. It made what was already going to be a wonderful wedding even more marvelous. Well, the service, oh, it was so beautiful. And Nancy looked absolutely lovely. I hate to admit it, even my brother was handsome. And the reception was marvelous. There was this wonderful band, and I've always loved to dance, so I danced with every single man there. I even got someone out of a wheelchair and had a, a little shuffle. Yes, I was a, a bouncing balloon of bubbling joy. Yes, I was, yes. And I was even more thrilled that at the end of the evening, the Texan who had twinkled said he'd decided to stay on for a week and would I give him a tour and show him around London and, and some of the, the home counties? Well, of course, I was absolutely thrilled. We had a lovely time. And we came to the last afternoon. He was flying back early the next day and we were having a cream tea in a little tea shop and we were chatting away and then he suddenly got very quiet and very still and he picked up my hand and he said, Geraldine, how long have you had those? Now, between the webs of my finger, I had all these little red bumps. And I said, oh, I said, probably since late January. He said, and tell me, are you very, very itchy? I said, well, yes, I am. But I didn't think you'd notice. I kept going round corners to have a quick itch while you weren't, when you, so that you couldn't, so you couldn't see. He said, well, Geraldine, I know what you've got because I've had it and it now means that I have it. You have scabies. And I said, what scabies? I'd never heard of it before. He said, it's not unto death. He said, it's about as easy to get and as embarrassing and as easy to get rid of or as hard to get rid of as head lice. He said, they're little insects that crawl under the skin, which make you very itchy. They don't affect the hair or the groin, but they affect everything else. So I told my mother. She sent me off to a specialist, a skin specialist. And he said, oh, yes, Miss Buckley. Yes, you do have a case of scabies, a very, very bad case of scabies. In fact, it's the worst case of scabies I've ever seen. It's very, very virulent, very virulent. In fact, you're terribly infectious. Indeed, you're so infectious that if you held anyone's hand or even patted their hand, they would get scabies. He said, tell me, have you been around many people recently? <laughs> I thought of the wedding. I thought of those 60 men that I danced with. Clearly I was a bouncing balloon of infectious joy. So I told my mother, I said, mother, we're going to have to phone up every man I dance with and tell them to get checked. And my mother, thinking of the society wedding and all the organization that had gone into it said, over my dead body. Well, divine retribution always comes around. Sometimes it happens very quickly and sometimes it takes many years. Well, with my mother, whom I loved enormously, it happened very quickly. I'd held her hands. I gave her scabies. I gave my brother, my brother who had done so many terrible things to me over the years, I gave him scabies. He gave it to his new wife and they hitched, they, they hitched, they itched. <laughs> they, they itched all the way through the honeymoon. Now, intellectually, I know it is a terrible thing to give a wedding gift that carries on giving. <laughs> but emotionally, can I truly say that I am sorry that after so many years, Damien got his divine comeuppance? Can I say that I, I am truly, truly sorry? Not in the slightest. Thank you, Lord! Thank you, Lord! <laughs> Thank you. Geraldine Buckley with Damien's Limp, a story that describes Geraldine's relationship with her brother, who loved jokes and pranks and shenanigans. You know, sometimes if you're on the receiving end of all those gags, you really find you need to develop the patience of a saint in order to love the person who's doing all that pranking. But what about loving a person who seems stern and critical, not the prankster in your life, but the person in your life who never seems to have a sense of humor at all, someone who always seems to be a grump, whether you agree or disagree with them. There are relationships like that too, right? And they take a lot of patience as well. And here's another secret. You probably take patience to get along with. I know I do. There's someone in your life who sees you coming and says a prayer because they need help from above to complete a class group assignment with you or have you on the T-ball team. I know that there are people who have to pray when they see me coming. 
We all cause someone a little trouble, and that's what helps me love someone I struggle with, that realization. That realization that somewhere out there is someone that I drive absolutely bonkers. But the opposite is true, too, isn't it? Someone loves me very much in spite of it all. My parents, for example, have continued to love me even when I'm a bonehead. They keep loving me, reminding me of who I want to be and could be and even am. (laughs) And they like that person, too. And eventually, that love has helped me become a better person. As a matter of course, each of us is loved by someone. Each of us means the world to someone. And that's helpful to remember, too. When faced with someone who challenges you, you might think about how there's someone who really loves that person, sees all their strengths and virtues, understands their heart, their motivations, and respects and admires them for it. And just because you only catch a snapshot of that person doesn't mean they aren't worthy of care and friendship, even if that snapshot is a little smudgy, a little grainy, a little underlit, doesn't cast them in the best light. Well, in just a moment, a little talk back with our producers, Heather and Brian, about Geraldine's story, Damien's Limp, And then we're going to hear about a soldier and his bet with the devil, a story about Igor Stravinsky's little piece, The Soldier's Tale. That's coming up here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. pleasure a moment ago to hear the story Damien's Limp, a story shared by Geraldine Buckley, recorded live in the Appleseed studio. And here to talk with me about that story, I've gotten around the desk the producers of the Appleseed, Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, great to be here. (laughs) You know, you hear a story like that, you think about the relationships that you may have had, relationships that might be characterized by some of the same I don't know, (laughs) troubles, tensions, right? Mm -hmm. Where does a story like that take you? You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my older sister, Amy, who's great, love her. I mean, she she really is just someone that I really look up to and is great to talk to and stuff like that. But I remember when we were younger, she used to like to antagonize, you know, people (laughs) in the family. I don't honestly know. I was younger if, if, if she was doing it on purpose. But one thing I do remember is that my parents would occasionally say, like, Amy, you are not a peacemaker. You are making contention in our mm. house. Oh, wow. And I think because I heard that enough times, it kind of drilled into my head, like, yeah, Amy creates contention. Amy's the one causing the problems <laughs> and stuff. And I'm like, and I don't know how helpful that was because I think that was something that I carried around. So with uh. my own kids, I'm very careful. Love you, Mom and Dad. You like <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not trying to throw you under the bus or anything. You're great parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's something that I do think about yeah. where I'm just like, I don't want to put a label. You know, I, I, I don't want to say like, this is the type of person that you are. You're mm-hmm. the type of person who is just making things bad for everyone else instead of just saying like, hey, in this is- instance, can you stop doing this? Or can you, you know? Yeah. How's Amy now? Oh, she's great. She's go. actually a school counselor. Oh, so, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Helping kids. The um, wedding story made me think of my sister's wedding, and it actually made me think of my sister's husband. And he and I developed this very sarcastic relationship with each other, which then went from, oh, we're just being funny, to that, and then it got a little sharper and a little yeah. sharper and a mm-hmm. little sharper. Mm-hmm. And eventually my sister said to me, um, I don't know why you're always so mean to him. You know, one of the things I like about him is he reminds me of you, <laughs> which uh, was humbling. And so then I had, which was another humbling experience, where I went and apologized <laughs> Um, and that was so difficult because we did have this very like sort of one in one upmanship kind of relationship. Yeah. And I had to go in and be like, hi, so for the past 18 months, I've behaved in a certain way mm, and yeah. I would like to hit reset and I would like to try again. Yeah, And that was really hard. And, uh, you know, he did not stop 
I think he wanted to test and see if I really meant it. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there was so many times I had to say to myself, we're all friends here. And <laughs> just like leave the room because I was like, I have something I could say. But yeah. I have promised my sister that I'm going to make oh, this relationship like more cordial and better. Yeah. Um, and part of me did that because I felt like I wasn't showing this person the best that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't being a good witness of what I actually believed in. Huh. And I said that to him as I apologized. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. not being a good Christian yeah. here. And I'm sorry for that, and I'm going to try better. You know, I think it takes some courage to say, here is something that I espouse, but that I am introspective enough to recognize that I'm not living, you know? Yeah. It was painful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was painful. And and I think part of my behavior since then has been, I never want to have to give that kind of apology again because <laughs> it was so difficult for yeah, me. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow. How's your relationship now? You know, we have our bumps. Um, I still say to myself occasionally, we're all friends here. <laughs> Leave the room. Um, but we are older, and I think we just don't have the same energy as we once did to make all those kinds of barbs at each other. So. But we, it's an example of, you know, we walk long paths together, right? Yeah. And uh, there are things we can do to make that traveling together easier on each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well— Talking about this, talking about tensions in relationships uh, reminds me of a memory that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When I was in fourth grade... No earthly possession was more important to me than my small collection of Star Wars action figures. And among those action figures, none was so important to me as Han Solo in Hoth gear. Now, there are things about an action figure that are hard to describe, things that make one cooler than another. I mean, again, it's hard to describe, really, but Han Solo's arm was kind of cocked in a way that was different than most other action figures, and somehow that made him cooler. And there was a little plastic feature on his holster that made it so you could mount his plastic blaster on the actual holster, which was kind of unusual and made him cooler. I know these are tiny, insignificant features. But if you collected these things, you knew you treasured them for those infinitesimally small features. Lots of kids had that Star Wars action figure, but I knew which one was mine. Mine had a little distinguishing scratch on the back of the parka, and, well, you know, don't you? Han Solo came with me to school one day. I stood him on my desk, and a lot of people noticed him. But only Ben Boswell asked if he could play with Han Solo at morning recess. Me, I loved Han Solo more than anything, but I was going to play marbles at recess. So I let Ben take Han as long as he promised to bring him right back to me when he came back to class. I never should have done it. The end of recess came, and Ben empty-handed, came back to me with a shrug and told me that some older kids on the playground had taken my action figure. And I was devastated, but what are you going to do? I mean, older kids, right? I sorrowed at my desk all through math and all through reading time, and then in the middle of a writing assignment, I glanced across the room at Ben Boswell's desk. And there, On top of his desk was Han Solo, my Han Solo. It had to be. And when the bell rang for afternoon recess, I strode over to Ben's desk and swiped up the action figure. I looked at the back of the parka. Sure enough, the distinctive scratch in the plastic. I shoved Han into my jeans pocket and stormed away out to the playground without a word. And I hadn't been out there for more than a moment when I felt someone tap me on the shoulder. I turned Ben Boswell. He told me he wanted the action figure back. Are you kidding me? I said. He told me it was his. I pulled it out of my pocket, showed him the scratch on the back of the parka. Mine, I said. This was ridiculous. Well, Ben's face got red, and he started to ball up his fists. And I knew I was right, but I also knew that Ben was bigger than me. And so, well, 
I ran, fast as I could go, toward the far corner of the playground. And Ben was on me in a moment, bigger than me and also faster than me. I stopped and turned around to face him. He swung his leg at me in a good kick to the shins, and I don't know how it entered my head, but I balled up my own fist and Pow! I socked him right in the nose. I saw his eyes begin to water, and then I saw the rage welling up in him like a tide that would wash all of us away. So I ran again, and he caught me again, and I turned again, and he kicked me again, and I balled up my fist again, and pow! Again, right in the nose. At that moment, the bell rang. Ben, holding his nose, ran back toward the school. I didn't dare. I wandered around alone on the playground for a while and finally went back to my classroom. And nobody said a thing. I might have thought that was it. I might have thought that was the end of the story. But I would go to school with Ben Boswell all through the rest of elementary school and then junior high before he moved away. I was in a school production of West Side Story with his sister Ruth. Aaron Brown, a good friend of mine, would for a while be Ben's girlfriend. For guys who had to live more or less in the same space for a long time, might there have been a better way of handling the great Han Solo incident? Maybe. Probably. I gotta say that while my fourth grade action figure is long gone, I am just enough of a geek that as a grown-up, I found a Han Solo in Hoth gear action figure on eBay, and he stands on my desk even as I'm saying these things to you, stands there as, let's say, a reminder that it's worth finding ways to get along, even with folks with whom you might have some trouble. After all, in some cases, you never know to what degree you'll remain part of each other's world. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we tell on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the dinner table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. It's been fun sharing some storytelling around uh, this table with Heather and Brian. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. We're thinking about how to love people with whom we struggle a bit. And we heard storyteller Geraldine Buckley tell us about her brother. And her story raises an important question. How do we learn to love people or even like people that make our lives difficult or uncomfortable? Because here's the thing. We're not asked to only be friends with our friends. I believe I have a responsibility to love all those that come into my path because communities don't work if we are only nice to the people we like and are like us. That's an important part of my belief. It's part of my faith. Things fall apart if we simply stick to our tribe without making efforts to reach out to those who are different from us. So what do we do? It helps when the other person is generous enough to show us something special about themselves, and we are generous enough to be interested, which is one way I came to love my grandfather. Kind of a tricky guy. But here's the story. It's about a performance of Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, a piece of music I've loved for many years. I went to a nightclub, actually, in Ogden, Utah, to hear a performance of the piece, and I wanted to share the experience with you. I'm Sam Payne. We're in Ogden, Utah, and we're just about to hear a 
concert, a performance of Igor Stravinsky's small ensemble piece, The Soldier's Tale, written in 1918. And as you listen to me say that, you may imagine us dressed in our finest, walking with a whisper into a concert hall, waiting for the lights to dim and the curtain to rise. And if that's what you imagine, ha, psych! We're not in a concert hall at all. We're in a nightclub. This is a space where you might expect to see a rock band or a DJ, but we're about to see an ensemble of wind instruments and brass instruments and a couple of string players and a percussionist and a narrator perform Stravinsky's story. It's a cautionary tale, a deal-with-the-devil tale, a Faustian tale. It's, it's a story that has iterations in all kinds of unexpected places, places like this. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you did. Ever heard that one? The devil went down to Georgia from the Charlie Daniels band? Well, it's got the same roots as Stravinsky's story, The Soldier's Tale. And the ensemble who's going to perform it for us tonight is called The Next Ensemble. And they perform new music and old in places like this. They're going to fill up this nightclub with this music, this story, while we watch in our blue jeans, in our casual duds. It's a far cry from the concert hall, but it's as riveting, as exciting as a rock concert. And I want to share the story with you in a minute, the story of The Soldier's Tale. But first, the ensemble is chatting with the audience, tuning up, and the nightclub is starting to get hopping. So the artistic advisor to the next ensemble, Carrie Campbell, and I, we go outside and we chat on the street for a minute, surrounded by the nightlife of historic 25th Street in Ogden. Well, Stravinsky... In 1914, his wife was sick, and he, they moved to Switzerland uh, to sort of help her get better. And while they were in Switzerland, World War I broke out. And because of World War I, uh, the Stravinsky's money flow sort of dried up, and he needed cash, and he befriended this, uh, this Swiss novelist and poet, and they came up with a scheme to write a piece that could be produced cheaply, that they could tour with, um, and so they came up with this soldier's tale for seven instrumentalists and uh, narrator and uh, dancers. Dancers? Dancers. There were no dancers tonight, um, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, not enough space, but but yeah, and, and dancers. And... They were planning on touring with the piece. They thought they could do it on a shoestring budget, but uh, it turned out that bad luck was following Stravinsky and an influenza broke out and sort of took out most of the musicians and the dancers, and and so they ended up not not touring. But uh, the piece is kind of beloved uh, by by people who know Stravinsky's music. It, it sort of sits somewhere between his earlier kind of Russian primitive stuff and his later neoclassical things. And it, it kind of has elements of both. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful mix. So here's Stravinsky trying to peddle not just a piece of music, but a story. And he's trying to sell it in a time when no one can afford to buy anything in a world laid low, first by war, and then by a flu epidemic that would kill more than 50 million people. There's a great story of Stravinsky performing the whole thing, the whole piece, the whole soldier's tale written for octet and narration, all by himself in the salon of some friends, singing the parts that he couldn't play all at once, shouting out the narration, banging on drums, making drum sounds with his mouth, a one-man dervish of a performance. And not in a concert hall, really in what amounted to a nightclub like this one. Well, we head inside to get a good seat on a soft sofa. And before us is the ensemble, hanging around, getting ready to make music. I wish we could bring you the whole thing, but we'll try to give you a bunch of it, enough for you to savor the piece a bit, and we'll start right here, at the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, the story of a soldier. (laughs) 
Down a hot and dusty road comes a soldier with his load. The story follows a soldier on furlough, headed home to see his sweetheart and his mother and all of his friends and neighbors in his old village. And this soldier, he plays the violin. And on his way home, he takes his violin from his pack to play it, when who should come upon him but the devil. The devil offers to give the soldier a book that tells the future in exchange for the soldier's violin. And the soldier agrees. But the devil can't play the violin, and the soldier can't read the book. So they go to the devil's kingdom. For just three days, the devil promises. And there, the soldier can teach the devil to play the violin, and the devil can teach the soldier to read the book. And they're gone for what feels like just three days, but when the soldier returns and goes back to his village, at him as if they're looking at a ghost, someone long dead. His own mother runs away from him in fear. The soldier's sweetheart is married to another guy with children. And the soldier realizes he's been gone not three days, but three years. It's not only his violin that's gone, but also his gift for making music and the future he hoped to have in his village. But there's always the book that tells the future, right? And the soldier uses it. He uses it to get rich. But his wealth doesn't bring him happiness. He wants the simple life he knew before he sold his violin to the devil. And about here in the story, the soldier learns that the princess, the daughter of the king, is ill, depressed, beset with an extreme case of melancholy. And whoever can snap her out of it can have her hand in marriage. Ah, if only I had my violin, the soldier thinks. If only I hadn't sold my gift. And lamenting what he has lost over a lonely drink, he finds himself playing cards with, of all people, the devil. And he suddenly has an idea. He thinks that if he can lose all his money in this card game, if he can get the devil to win back all the lucre the soldier got from the devil's magic book, then maybe he can be free of the devil. And maybe he can get his violin back and his happiness. And what do you know? It works. The soldier loses everything to the devil in the card game, but winds up with the violin again. And with the violin, he sets out for the palace where he plays for the princess and snaps her out of her melancholy and marries her. Happy ending, right? Only it's not the end because once having made a deal with the devil, the devil is always part of the soldier's story. And the devil places a curse on the soldier in his new life. The curse says that if the soldier tries to leave the environs of the palace, he'll lose everything to the devil. The idea is that the soldier can enjoy the life he's won, the life with the princess. But if he tries to go back to any of the happiness he'd enjoyed in his old village, he'll lose everything. He can't have both the old happiness and the new happiness. So says the curse. But the soldier misses his old mother, and he convinces the princess to go back to his old village with him. What about the curse, she asks. And the soldier tells her he thinks they could escape the curse if the devil doesn't know they're going. They should go in disguise, he says. But there's no fooling the devil like that. And as Stravinsky's story ends, everything the soldier loves is streaming away from him, and he's helpless to hang on to any of it. The devil in Stravinsky's story 
wins. Really happy ending, right? So why do I love the story enough to drive to Ogden to see it performed in a nightclub on 25th Street? For me, what can a story like this do? Well, that has to do with my grandfather. I've talked about my grandfather on the show before. Gordon W. Pappas, the son of a Greek immigrant who came to America and then left again to fight in World War I. My grandfather would fight in World War II. And both my grandfather and my great-grandfather were pacifists, grumpy old pacifists. I don't have a first-hand memory of my great-grandfather, but my grandfather was the quintessential grumpy old man, ready with an opinion on just about anything, but tough to get to know. You know the kind of guy? I sometimes describe him as a curmudgeonly, dictatorial, authoritarian old Greek. But I say it with love, for sure. I mean, I loved my grandpa. I was just terrified of him. I never knew what to say around him. And I guess he never knew what to say around me either, really. So we didn't talk a lot. Not, not really. He was a musician, and we could sort of talk about that, but only sort of. And one day, when I was in high school, I got off the bus and came in the house, and there was a package on the table for me. I opened the package, and inside the package was a VHS tape. Yeah, I went to school in the era of the VHS tape. And on the spine of the VHS tape, in my grandpa's careful handwriting, were the words, The Soldier's Tale. Huh, I said. Mom, do you know what this is? And my mom shrugged. I had homework, but sometime that night, I put the tape in the VCR. My grandpa had recorded it from public television, this performance of Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, set to animation by the great animator and illustrator R.O. Blechman. And I saw unfold before me this story, the story of a soldier, a soldier who's also a musician, like my grandpa. Only, of course, my grandfather played not the violin, but the trumpet. the story made at the end of World War I, I have wondered if I was seeing my grandfather. I wonder if I was seeing some of the stuff going on in his heart. I think about the boys who died in World War I, and I think about the flu epidemic that shut down Stravinsky's ideas of touring the piece, and about how the war nearly shut down the music entirely, about Stravinsky peddling this work in an impossible, war-torn, flu-ridden world. And I think about my grandfather's ideas about war, his pacifism. And I think about the place that music occupied in my grandfather's soul. And I think about how his ideas about financial and social responsibility affected his ideas about family. And I wonder if my grandfather was telling me things about the danger of trading your priceless gifts for things that are merely the things that money can buy. I wonder some of those things in high school. But as I learn more about my grandfather, I, I wonder even more. I didn't know in high school much about my grandfather's war service, about how he was captured in France, made to march in a column of prisoners, how he kept from going crazy by arranging tunes in his head. The soldier's tale comes back to me all the time, long after my grandfather has gone, and I'm still unpacking it all these years later. All these years later, I listen to that music, and I think I can see the things behind the hard crust that seemed always to encase my curmudgeonly old grandfather. All these thoughts and feelings and ideas just pouring right from his head into mine through that music, through that story. I like to think that he gave me himself when he gave me that story. 
and I treasure that look into his heart. I think I'll treasure it always. Because in the end, just like Carrie Campbell and Avery Franklin and the rest of the next ensemble who performed the soldier's tale for us in the nightclub in Ogden, taking the music from the concert hall where you don't know the rules or how to behave and putting it in another context where you can get more easily at what it might mean to you, the soldier's tale has always taken my grandfather out of the context in which I usually see him. A context where I don't know the rules and don't know how to behave. And it puts him where I can more easily get at what he might mean to me. When it comes down to it, that's what a story like this can do. Thanks again to Next Ensemble. It was a great night hearing that piece of music and the thoughts and feelings that came from it. Next time you're finding yourself with someone who's a bit of a struggle to love, I hope you give them the room we all need to be ourselves and look for a way to connect that's genuine and sincere. And I promise I'll do the same. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your world. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. Maybe you're listening on a podcast today. And if you are, consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review. It helps people find the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.